Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, an interesting conversation today with the recently retired Chief Administrative Officer for uh, Halifax Regional Municipality, Jacques Dubay. Uh, that's, of course, the largest municipality uh, east of uh, Quebec. Uh, he had 5,000 employees under his purview, and uh, I think it'll be a very interesting conversation. We focused much of our discussion on how you manage growth and the things that you have to do as a city to be able to support growth. And as we look at all of the other urban centers in Atlantic Canada, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from uh, what uh, Jacques did in Halifax. Yes, in fact, I, I, you know, uh, Jacques should uh, get a lot of credit for uh, what's happened in Halifax over his tenure. Um, he, uh, he really, uh, I think, prepared the city for growth. They, there was a lot of planning that went into place that, uh, that has really helped, uh, including, uh, you know, a renewed center plan and, and, a, and a bigger regional plan to look at growth nodes and uh, opportunities throughout uh, the, uh, the region. And in fact, the center plan, as he mentioned, um, can accommodate 100,000 more housing units. Uh, which is uh, which is the right thing for a growing city. We have to densify our core uh, on both sides of the harbor, uh, both Halifax and Dartmouth, if we're going to be able to sustain the kind of growth that's anticipated in Halifax over the next uh, thirty or forty years. In fact, you know the Halifax uh, partnership uh, uh, believes that the city will be uh, up to six hundred and fifty thousand by twenty thirty seven. So, you know, we're going to really have to be able to accommodate a lot more people. And, and honestly, it's better to have them uh, in the core than, you know, sprawling all over the place as, uh, as what happened early on in, in after amalgamation. So he, he put a lot of things in place, uh, you know, and, 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 and the one thing that uh, he was really uh, strong at is going through a consultation process to make sure that uh, uh, people were listened to, whether it was for the... Cogswell redevelopment or the policing in the in the community, um, you know, that's a good legacy. The approach that he took to make sure they got to the right solution um, was really important. And one other thing that I want to I want to point out, and I talked about it in the uh, conversation with him, is that um, the combination of having a really professional manager like Jacques in place, doing the right things, with a mayor and a council. That were aligned in the, the you know the focus on the downtown core especially, I think was really important. We went through a period in Halifax where, for 20 years, think about this, David. For 20 years, there wasn't one bloody building, commercial building built in the downtown. It's the only city in Canada where that happened, and that was really the result of very poor political leadership under the previous mayor, Peter Kelly. And, um, and, you know, that's what a change of leadership can do to a, to a city. And now we have a thriving, you know, prosperous city. And uh, it wouldn't have happened without the change of political leadership. And it wouldn't have happened without the arrival of Jacques Dubay. Well, that's high praise, Don. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll appreciate that, as will uh, uh, the Mayor Savage. I thought it was interesting if you, you, you hear Jacques' background in, in our discussion. He did spend a lot of time in economic development running first the organization in the Fredericton area and then the Department of Business New Brunswick for uh, for the government of New Brunswick. 
it's an interesting background, right? He then he went on and he he ran the city in Moncton and then Halifax. I think having an economic development background probably makes you a little more growth oriented, maybe than some other uh, city managers or the background that they might have. But I think that was beneficial to Jacques. And you'll hear in the conversation he talks an awful lot about the economy and entrepreneurs, you know, and these kinds of things, and understanding the developers. He actually shout gives a shout out to a number of uh, of the important developers, real estate developers in Halifax. So I think that's, uh, you know, that background, I think, helped him a lot. Uh, also, you know, he uh, he gave credit to the Halifax Partnership, which I think has been really important in terms of uh, economic development strategy, uh, for sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, uh, he has worked closely with as a municipality with the partnership. Uh, they've been really hand in hand in terms of uh, uh, going ahead. And I think that that was an important, uh, uh, that has been a really important aspect of the success in Halifax as well. Now you did ask him somewhat of a controversial question. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that now, <laughs> your, your love of Ecom Seekum. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I have not been a big fan of what happened in amalgamation. I was, uh, I was supportive of amalgamating the, uh, the urban areas of Bedford, Dartmouth, and Halifax uh, uh, when it was talked about. And then the Liberal government under uh, John Savage, by the way, Mike's father, uh, threw in the county of Halifax. And it, it was done uh, to download the cost of the county onto the urban residents. It's, that's, that's why it was done. The, the, the government was in trouble at the time financially, and they had some obligation to the county. They decided it would be better for the urban residents to pay for that, basically. And as Jacques has uh, pointed out in his conversation with us, the, the rural communities, despite the fact that many of them feel that they are overtaxed for what they get, are still being heavily subsidized by uh, the urban uh, core. And uh, that's going to go on forever. And, and I've always felt that uh, the county, the old county of Halifax, would have been left better off being alone because it was actually a very successful municipality, paid its own way, served the needs of that community, and it got all screwed up by being included in the regional municipality. So, you know, it's, I guess it's going to be that way forever. But, you know, now we have a municipality bigger than PEI. It's the largest municipality in Canada from a geography point of view. It's so big that if you're in Ecomsecom, which is the far edge of it, you cannot get the radio stations in downtown Halifax. It makes no sense from a management point of view. And that will be my position until the day I die. <laughs> well, maybe they'll build high-speed rail out there, Don, and name it yeah. after you. Oh, they might. They might. <laughs> okay, without any further ado, here's our conversation with uh, Jacques Dubé. Between 2021 and 2022, every urban center in the Maritimes witnessed population growth from Camelton to Summerside to Halifax. The big challenge now is to ensure we can properly manage population growth. In the past couple of years, the region has seen Everything from a rapid increase in house prices to more homelessness and increased wait times for just about every public service. To discuss this, we are joined today on the Insights Podcast by Jacques Dubé, who recently stepped down as the Chief Administrative Officer of the Halifax Regional Municipality. Welcome to the podcast, Jacques. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Before we dive into today's topic, we want you to tell us a bit about your background. How did you go from being a sales manager in Bathurst, New Brunswick, to running the 13th largest city in Canada with nearly 5,000 employees? Well, look, I appreciate the question. Um, 
I guess when I, I started out uh, my, my career in the public service back in 1983, it was kind of an accidental public service servant, actually. I was in the private sector for about 10 years before I joined the public sector, and I've been in the, I had been in the public sector now for 40 years. So uh, the way that happened was I was in the, kind of the right place at the right time. Uh, I was in, sort of a managing editor, sales manager for a local francophone weekly newspaper, and um uh, a friend of mine called me and asked me if I was interested in running the municipal school board elections that spring because they had lost. And there was a fellow who was doing that and he had passed away and the government was looking for somebody to do that. Somebody who was bilingual, who knew the area, uh, you know, not only the Schiller region where I was living in Bathurst, but also on the on the Acadian Peninsula. So I had uh, I had a lot of contacts throughout the Northeast. So they asked me whether I was interested in doing that on a temporary basis, basically to, to get into this, to have the elections in May or June of that year. And then I would go back to my job in the, the newspaper. So I effectively approached my publisher uh, and who was based in Karaket and uh, asked him if I could take a leave of absence. And he said, yes. So I said, yeah, well, sure. Let my name go forward. And ultimately they decided they were going to hire me for six months. So I, I actually never went back. Uh, in the meantime, the job, the permanent job came open, which was a municipal services representative for Gloucester County. And uh, at that point, I really had no intention of working in government. Uh, I was quite happy in the private sector, but, you know, I, <clears throat> I sort of lots of conversations with my wife. I decided to put my name forward for that permanent job. I ended up getting it. And, uh, and from there, I did that for about, you know, seven years until 1990. And you know, my job with municipal affairs was, was basically to, to administer all the local service districts in Gloucester County, everywhere from Miscu to to uh, Valcamo to Beldoon, Alaville, and everything in between. And uh, so, and I was also an advisor to about 20 municipalities during that period, uh, all the incorporated municipalities in Gloucester County. And so after about seven years of doing that, I got kind of tired of it. And... Uh, like it's so with anything else, I, I just generally, you know, base my career on five to seven year stints, different places. And uh, I figured if I was going to advance my career, I'd have to get out of my comfort zone. So I'm the first job that came up uh, after I decided to leave that job was um, uh, was in St. Andrews, New Brunswick. Uh, and uh, I applied for it. And uh, frankly, I didn't think I was going to get it. An Acadian from Bathurst applying for the job as town manager in the fashion of what is loyalist uh, city in New Brunswick, I thought, well, I'd never get that job. But the fact is, I knew a lot about them uh, just by looking at statistics and, and information I was able to glean through the Department of Municipal Affairs that I was working in. So I went there and uh, got a couple of interviews, landed the job, and we moved there, my kids and my wife, and we ended up in St. Andrews for five years. And it was a wonderful experience managing a small town. I was able to apply my skills that I learned in municipal affairs. And uh, and we did a lot of projects there. And then ultimately, uh, after five years, uh, I got a call. I got a call from uh, Bud Bird, who was, uh, who, was the, who was who had been asked by uh, the mayor of Fredericton, uh, Brad Woodside at the time, and a number of municipalities around greater Fredericton region to create a new economic development corporation. And a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, actually, was a guy by the name of John Robinson. John was the city manager in Fredericton at the time. And I used to lean on John heavily when I was in town in St. Andrews on policy questions and things like that. And, and uh, so John had recommended uh, to Bud that he call me and ask me whether I was interested. And 
again, I sort of said nothing adventure, nothing gain. I ended up uh, applying for the job. I got that job as president, the president and CEO of the Greater Fredericton Economic Development Corporation, which was owned by the 14 municipalities in the region of Fredericton, everything from Nakwick down to Cambridge Narrows and, you know, places like that all over the, all over the sort of that central, central western part of New Brunswick. David and I actually, you and I actually met when I was doing that job because you were in the economic development for the province at the time. And, you know, it was, it was kind of the heyday of the, of the dot-com bubble and call center business and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And, you know, Fredericton was positioning itself as a research and development IT center engineering hub. So it was kind of an easy job. It was easy to do economic development because there's a lot of business to be had uh, and a lot of growth in that, in that area. So ultimately I ended up uh, doing that for five years. And then about a year after the Bernard Lord government uh, got elected and I didn't know Bernard Lord, but uh, about a year after they were elected, they, um, they called me and they said, would you come to work for the province in economic development? And they wanted to give me a test drive. Um, the, the objective was to, to appoint me as deputy minister of business, New Brunswick, but they wanted to give me a test drive. So in the fall of 2000, I got appointed and accepted a job as a vice president of development for the regional development corporation, which is a crown corp in New Brunswick. And, um, it's kind of like the there's kind of like two banks in New Brunswick, RDC and the Minister of Finance. So Regional Development Corporation uh, hired me. I went there for six months, and then January of 2001, about six months later, I got appointed Deputy Minister of Business New Brunswick, which I did for a few years, three years, and then there was a Deputy Minister shovel, uh, shuffle in um, I guess it was 2003 or sometime in 2003. I, I was I was asked by the Premier of the day to take on Service New Brunswick and uh, head up that Crown Corp of Service New Brunswick, which I did. And then uh, about 2000 and uh, I guess it was 2006, I got a call from Greg Thompson. Greg Thompson, I knew a little bit simply because he was, when I was in St. Andrews, he was the EMP. But if you recall in 1993, Jean Chrétien won the country and uh, and there's only two Tories left standing, Elsie Wayne and Jean Charest. And uh, Greg was one of those guys who lost his seat in that big sweep. And uh, but Greg knew me, and uh, Greg just got elected uh, in the in that Harper government of 2006. And uh, so he needed a bonningle person, needed somebody who knew the province, who could because he was regional minister as well. And the regional minister's job is not uh, not well known necessarily. Uh, in, in by by the public, but regional minister means a fair bit in in, in Ottawa when there, there were such a thing as regional ministers. There's none now, but the regional minister basically gets to make decisions on every, what everything the federal government is doing uh, in 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 a province, right? So, for example, Peter McKay was the minister, regional minister for Nova Scotia. Greg Thompson was regional minister for New Brunswick. He was also he was also appointed to cabinet in uh, Veterans Affairs. So anyway, Greg calls me and asks me whether I was going to do that. He and he and a guy, a guy by the name of Derek Burney, who was the transition guy for Stephen Harper. So uh, I was kind of happily ensconced as president of Service New Brunswick, and didn't really have any appetite to do that. But you know, I said, Greg, let's talk. So he invited me to Ottawa. We went to I went to Ottawa, uh, had a chat with them, and uh, and. 
And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that I could do more for New Brunswick in that job than I could as a deputy minister or a president of service New Brunswick at the time. So I decided to take a flyer and I entered into the went over to the dark side of government and worked as a chief of staff on the Hill uh, for the regional minister for New Brunswick and minister of veterans affairs. So I did that for three and a half years and then uh, got tired of that. Uh, you know, chiefs of staff on the Hill don't last much more than two years on average. Uh, so I did three and a half. So, you know, in that, in that time, I, we did a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I worked, worked with the Lord government and then Sean Graham took over as premier uh, about six months after I got there, actually. So I worked a lot with Sean Graham and his chief of staff, Belnal Terio from Karaket, who I knew well. And uh, we did a lot of work and a lot of projects came down through New Brunswick in that time. And it was a good experience, but, you know, it's, it's a burnout job. So uh, at the end of the day, I, I wanted to move back to the Maritimes and uh, the city of Moncton was looking for a city manager. Uh, I think that would have been 2009. So Greg and I decided we were both going to get out of that, those roles. Greg wanted to retire and his, his extra strategy was to uh, cut the ribbon on the third bridge across the St. Croix River. And my, my exit strategy was to become the test city manager in Moncton. <laughs> so, so I did that. And uh, seven years later, and my, my commitment to my wife at the time was I was going to simply do that job in Moncton and then retire. And uh, But then, of course, the city of Halifax, or HRM, uh, that job came open. And uh, that would have been in I guess in 2016. So it was almost too good to, to, to pass up. So I put, I threw my name in the ring and uh, I always wanted to manage HRM. That was kind of my career goal in a sense. And I always wanted the opportunity and I wasn't sure I, ever, I was ever going to get it. But, um, and given my age at the time, I was 62 uh, at the time. And I was thinking, well, maybe I should just retire here in Moncton. That'll be the end of it and move back to Bathurst. But I, 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 I got, I got the job in Halifax and I, I was, I ended up there and I uh, did that for six plus years, six years and three months and a few days. And, and here, now here I am retired. So that's how I got here. And that's how I got to, to run Halifax for, for, uh, for a time. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great story, uh, Jacques. Um, I want to get into uh, your time at, uh, as CAO in Halifax. Among sure. the 27 cities across Canada with at least 200,000 population, Halifax had the, ha- the fastest growing uh, population in the last five years. <clears throat> yeah. And I- I'd like at a very high level to uh, tell our listeners what you attribute that growth to. Well, you know, growth is, um, it's not just one thing, right? So it, there's a number of things, as you point out, Don, I think the the population did grow um, by about 2% or better from 2016 onwards. And, you know, we were, Halifax is one of these growth nodes or growth poles, right? It's a term to use, use in many places like London and Jakarta and places in the world where, you know, it's reinforced by, where the growth is self-reinforced basically by household and business beliefs that the region will continue to grow and the business environment is sound and the public sector's role is appropriate. And the fact that the municipality, Halifax, is both the provincial capital and the main commercial center for Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada reinforces that kind of belief. So I say all that simply to say to tee up, there's a number of factors around the growth and that municipality uh, contributed to in that time. Certainly, you know, enabling growth by, you know, streamlining regulatory and administrative processes. Uh, we adopted things like the center plan, you know, which, which 
effectively enabled uh, about 100,000 units uh, in, in HRM. And we also adopted a new regional plan. So strategy is really important here. You have to have a strategy and it has to be focused on land use and it has to be focused on your economic strategy. We have an economic partner. We, we, uh, we have the Halifax partnership and, you know, all of, a lot of this is all about strategy and, and trying to implement strategy. We also did things like, you know, cutting out red tape and we put in a new permitting and licensing system, for example, which allows our customers to clearly track planning and development applications. And we also, in the center plan model, we have planned growth areas. So it's a very purposeful approach to this. And it's, you know, the other thing I would say is uh, it's partially driven by increasing the pool of high skilled workers and risk-taking entrepreneurs, um, you know, supported by the public sector in various ways. And of course, that phenomenon where highly skilled workers interact with one another in a kind of limited geographic space. Uh, results in idea generation and, and it's basically referred to you know in david in david's speak that would be agglomerate economies right so these this is all about creating programs that support the work so we you know we have an ocean we have an ocean super cluster in halifax we have volta labs uh, so we've been focused on those kinds of things and the other thing is that you know we're a halifax is a port city and you know that helped create basically an underpinning of public sector institutions outside the health and education uh, sectors, such as the Royal Canadian Navy and the adjacent Department of National Defense, which are stationed there. The other the other aspect of that is, I'd say, is you know investing in community community building and, and placemaking, right? So people want to have to live there, and Halifax already had a, a great reputation anyway, and Nova Scotia has a great reputation as a place to visit and to do business, but, you know, we have to create the right environment while you're there uh, as, as public institutions. So, you know, we created this new Argyle Street Entertainment District. We have the Cogswell District. That's a huge project, a hundred million dollar, over a hundred million dollar investment to create a brand new neighborhood right in the downtown adjacent to the historic properties, right? The doorstep of this, of the downtown Halifax. You know, there are major investments in things like public library, the Halifax Public Library, we, the reimagining of Spring Garden Road. Um, the Dartmouth Bridge Terminal, these all create a place of purpose for residents. And of course, you know, they have to be of high level quality design and have a significant impact on the, uh, for residents to help, help the community thrive, right? So, you know, that whole bit about having useful public infrastructure that improves commercial trade and resident transportation is really important. And of course, the other thing is, you know, the capital, if you look at our capital budget, it's heavily focused on transportation networks and improving public transit services. So when, when you get there, you have to be able to get around and you have, people have to get to work effectively and efficiently. And then, of course, the other part of that whole conversation about community building is the, is the, the adoption of Halifax, of Halifax which, was, which is our climate action plan, which prioritizes the protection of natural wilderness spaces as investments for future generations. You know, an example of that is, is um, you know, the Shaw Wilderness Park, right, that Alan Shaw spearheaded. You know, we, we were looking at Blue Mountain Burst Cove Wilderness Area as a, as a future national park where the work is already going on there with the national government, the federal government, uh, and, our, and, our, and various stakeholders in the community. And then, of course, you also have to think about um, Sporting the heritage of the people and the places that are there, including the African African Nova Scotians, the Mi'kmaq, you know, the two SLGBTQ plus residents and newcomers. You have to invest in initiatives that support that heritage and, and those folks. 
you know, all the voices have to be heard. And that's sort of part of the mantra in Halifax, right? And of course, you know, I talked about the regional plan. But we also have things like the integrated mobility plan. We have quality of life indicators. We have the green network plan. And we recently partnered with Dow and the Halifax Partnership and Engage Nova Scotia, uh, where we adopted quality of life indicators. And in fact, um, you know, you can manage what you measure. And, and last year, HRM was awarded the ISO uh, 37120 Platinum Certification from the World Council on, on uh, City Data. And that certification recognizes the high caliber of Halifax municipalities' data, which is you know, effectively going to allow us to compare ourselves to significant cities from around the world. You know, so you really have to act locally and think globally, as, you know, as we all know. And I'd say lastly on that, in that conversation about you know, what's, what's been contributing to it is the uh, and the fastest growing downtown is economic development promoted through collaboration with the Halifax Partnership, the Chamber of Commerce, the Innovation District. You know, immigration has played a huge role. Um, you know, last year, I think Stats Canada just released the numbers recently, 21,000 people arrived in Halifax in 2022, uh, which is significant. And, uh, you know, the economic, mi- the economic migration or immigration pro- program uh, like the Atlantic Immigration Pilot is, 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 is important. And we're very pleased to see the federal government to make that a permanent thing. So, you know, all that population increase and the immigration growth requires a lot of public supports and, you know, building the infrastructure to house, to house a rapidly growing population requires us to partner with all, all levels of government to focus on, you know, critical and strategic infrastructure investments, I would say. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not just one thing. It's been a number of things over time that have uh, created this momentum. I would also point out that the retention rate at the universities in Halifax are very high. They've been hovering in the 25 to 30% range. And that's very important. You know, we have, uh, we were just recently named one of the top 100 places for uh, one, one of the top 100 employers in Canada. This is HRM for, for youth, young people. And that's been a purposeful, you know, as an organization, we've been supporting the arrival of students and trying to make them stay in Halifax and get them jobs and things like that. And as an employer ourselves, we're recognized as, as, as one of the top employers in Canada for youth. So I'm very proud of that. And I, and I think the momentum is palpable and it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. One of the things that <clears throat> that you didn't mention, but I also think is important is that we had at the municipal level, we we have very good political leadership. The leadership totally. that brought a new attitude in. Like I remember the days of Peter Kelly when there wasn't a single building that had been built under his leadership in the downtown core, not one. <clears throat> and uh, you know, Mike Savage, to his credit, uh, organized the 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 council. You saw it firsthand, I'm sure. And oh, yeah. and and they all started to go in the, in the same direction, which I think was a major change uh, for the city, at least from my point of view. I, I wanted to ask I, you I about. Actually agree. I agree with that actually, because I'm and you know I'm glad you pointed it out because the leadership at HRM, uh, political and administrative, are strong. We have very strong teams there, both political and administrative. Mm. And uh, you know the fact that. Mike Savage, uh, I always said, if you if you were Tinkerbell and had some pixie dust and you want to create a perfect mirror, you would use that, make Tinkerbell out would pop out. Mike Savage, you know, because he is a strong mayor and council was purposeful in, in the development. They wanted to direct and have directed development in, into the downtown core, and mm-hmm. uh, of course now we're seeing the big benefits of that. 
Well, that's what I was referring to. He he became a proponent of uh, the downtown, which I think was the was a real uh, catalyst for the growth in the city. Now, in the last year alone, um, Halifax was second fastest growing city behind Moncton. Interesting enough, in terms of population growth, I think the number David was four point seven percent. Now, David and I are beginning to be concerned about that pace of of, of growth. We think that there's there's you know there's beginnings of some pushback on growth uh, and concerns about what it's doing to housing, the availability of healthcare, and other infrastructure uh, service issues. Sure. Um, you know you know what what do we have to do to overcome that backlash? I guess that's the question. Yeah. Well, I think it all comes down to hearing all the voices, right? Public engagement is it can't be just lip service. You need to engage, right? Like Cogswell, you know, we're gonna, we're taking a big financial and big construction risk on developing a, a community down there. We took a lot of time and made sure we had pop up sessions in Scotia Square. We reached out to all kinds of folks, you know, and you can't be telling people what's good for them. You need to hear from them what's good for them. You know, I would say the same thing is, you know, in, in the road to economic prosperity, which is the African Nova Scotian Economic Action Plan that we, we pulled together with that community. It was their process. We supported it. They have, it's the first ever in, in HRM where the African Nova Scotian communities, and there's a number of communities you well know uh, in HRM, uh, they're diverse and they're not all the same and they don't all have the same interests. Uh, but we were able to coalesce, work with them to help them coalesce around an action plan. So the whole idea of engagement, uh, public engagement is really, really important before you start coming up with conclusions. You know, let's listen to the facts. And but at the same time, you've got to be able to lead from the center. You've got to lead from, you know, the, from, you've got to sort of reflect what the, what the silent majority uh, believes in. Right. And that, there's a merit to that. And uh, you're going to hear the noise from, you know, the, the radicals on one on, on either side of an issue. Right. And um, but I think you have to cut through all that. But make sure you hear all the voices and come up with some with some policy and uh, policy uh, frameworks and uh, strategies and projects that will uh, will bring you to that point where you're leading from the middle. Jacques, sometimes fast-growing cities uh, also see a rise in crime rates. We're seeing that in Moncton now, a little bit in Charlottetown, a little bit in Fredericton. Uh, I did look at the numbers. The crime rate kind of maintained and actually dropped slightly during your time as as CAO. Um, But in your strategic priorities plan, you do have a safe communities as one of your top priorities. So what what is the city doing and what, what should cities be doing to ensure there are safe places to live? Well, I think, you know, first of all, you have to have a strategy. You know, we have a public safety strategy. Uh, we, we rolled out a public safety strategy, uh, I think, 2017, 2018, uh, that brought us to, to this to 2022. Um, you know, Dr. Amy Siciliano, who I hired as, a, as our lead on the, on the public safety office as part of my, part of the CAO's business unit, uh, she and her team created a team to, to you know, basically implement and come up with a new strategy going forward. So there's a number of things in, in terms of safe communities, you know, and safe communities as, as broad as you well know, it's not just about policing, it's about making sure that, uh, you know, those who are less privileged or who and, and ha- are living in challenging situations, you know, the social, this is a social uh, initiative, really. Um, you know, so you have to have a strategy that 
focuses on those needs. Again, it all, it's all about understanding what the various uh, folks uh, uh, expect and, you know, what we can do to help them move ahead in life. You know, for example, you know, we created an accessibility advisory committee. We created a, an African Nova Scotian advisory committee. We, we have a women's advisory committee. You know, we have, we have, there are, there are different demographic and different ethnic backgrounds who are, who, who, who have different needs when it comes to public safety, right? Women, for example, we have, we, we were able to leverage some dollars of the federal government, some $3.5 million to make sure that we have safe, we have a strategy that creates safe places. I remember in the COVID, you know, we were, we were telling people to stay home, but you know, the truth is that sometimes home is not, it's not the safest place for people to be, particularly, particularly women. So you need to make sure that you're partnering with uh, service providers. You know, the city doesn't have expertise in, in social work. It doesn't have social workers, for example. We're not, it's not part of our mandate, it's provincial mandate, but you have to work with various community groups to address specific needs of various demographic groups of various demographic groups right so that's what we, we we're doing we've you know we've involved in education we're involved with crisis management we have you know crisis or response teams in various communities you know we where we we're not imposing that on anybody but we're going into communities where they are saying that we have a problem and we'd like to have uh, a crisis response teams we've been putting those in place where appropriate and in 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 a way that those communities can support right so there's a there's a whole variety of things on public safety that uh, people think about as a crime, but you know that's just one that's just one element of it. In relation to crime, however, uh, and, and hard and what I call hard policing services, you know, we're Halifax is in the process of reinventing policing to the extent that there's there are two major studies that are going on. One is is being was being led by my office, uh, led by Bill Moore, former former head of the Canadian Police. Uh, Chiefs Association and a former deputy chief of HR, HRP. And uh, the other one is led by Amy Siciliano. So Bill's study, is, and we're, we've, we've, been, we've engaged PricewaterhouseCoopers as consultants to look at how do, we, how do we better position policing for the future? How do we provide more support to police officers? This is not about defunding police. I mean, there's a lot of talk about defunding police. This is actually trying to provide resources to police that they can do their jobs more efficient, more efficiently. And that, you know, in certain circumstances, you don't have to send sworn officers into, um, into an incident where, whereas, you know, a psychologist or a social worker might be better. So it really means more making more investments, not less, but in, in on the softer, what I call the softer side of policing. So we're looking at that and we're looking at the structure of, of the police force and in HRM, you know, we have, uh, we have, we have a dual force. We have a so-called integrated police model where you have HRP servicing about 75% of the population and the RCP serving serving about 25% of the population. So we're looking at that model. Does it still make sense? And uh, so that's a PwC uh, work. And then Amy and her team, my office, we've been looking at, you know, how do we, how do we work better on the so on the softer side of policing, you know, in terms of that, so uh, and that's where we are with public safety. Uh, it's it's uh, it's very complex, but I think there's a better model than we, we've currently uh, seen in the past. And but it's going to involve, you know, working with various uh, various uh, service providers uh, and funding service providers to provide. Um, social worker support and psychologist uh, re, uh, support 
uh, to various incidents. Right now, for example, you, you know, police officers pick, pick somebody up um, and they bring them to the hospital. They have to sit there in the hospital. You know, why is that? Uh, you know, in certain circumstances, that shouldn't be happening. They're taking out valuable resources out of the police where we need hard policing and, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, being the, being, uh, being the, the guardian or the supervisor of the person who's in the hospital but has committed some kind of a crime of some sort. But not all crime is that serious where you need a police officer to be standing there. And the other, uh, you know, the other thing is alcohol and drug addiction. We were working, we, we, we did a study, brought it to council on, on creating a, a detox center in Halifax, as opposed to throwing people in jail in a, in, a, in a drunk tank, you know, let's bring them to places where they can actually get support. So we're creating, we're in the process of doing that. Uh, HRM Council will be soon seeing uh, a, a final recommendation where we've been able to achieve a partnership with the province of Nova Scotia to create, uh, you know, a detox center where people who have either drug have have have. I have overdosed on, on alcohol or other drugs, um, can go and get the support they need to, to uh, live a better life, right? So th- there's a lot of things that the city can do and is doing. The other part of it is homelessness, right? So homelessness is all part of this issue of public safety. So we have been, you know, we created uh, about 60 or so spaces for homeless people, uh, in both in Dartmouth and Halifax. And we've been supporting not-for-profits. We've been We've been working with the federal government on the rapid housing initiative for you know, low low income uh, housing uh, and those kinds of things, uh, safe places, housing for single single mothers, right? Uh, those kinds of things. So there's a lot of things happening in Halifax on the public safety front, and I, I'm just highlighting a few for you there. Hmm. Yeah, I actually wanted to turn to housing as my next question. Uh, housing costs have, as they have across the country, they went up about 80%. Uh, in Halifax between September 2016 and November 2022. What is the city's role to ensure there's adequate housing and a broad base of housing to support all citizens and not just maybe the kind of upper end or the the markets that are a little more affluent? Like, how, What's the city's role to make sure that those housing costs are somewhat restrained because housing is, after taxes, it's the second biggest uh, cost for most households? You know, I think we're in a perfect storm right now, uh, to the extent that, you know, the uh, interest rates are high, higher than normally. I remember my first house, I think I paid 17% interest rates <laughs> on that first mortgage rate. That's a long time ago. But, you know, nobody nobody in the, in the younger generation has seen higher interest rates until now, and they think 6 or 7% is high. Well, the truth is, is that it was higher at one point uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but, you know, here we are in a perfect storm where supply is an issue, uh, supply chain is an issue, and labor force is an issue, right? So if you frame it up against that, you, know, you certainly have a challenging situation. But you're right to point out that you have to look at housing from a broad spectrum, you know, from a, from a continuum of housing, from, you know, some social housing. We have people living in tents who don't want to live in, even if you offer them a hotel room. And I, we, we went through this in the last few years when I've been in Halifax. We were offering people hotel rooms and they would not take them. Um, with, with a roof and, and food and support and social workers there to support that they would not go there. They'd rather sleep in a tent where there are no rules and they can, they can control. And we, and we get that. There are people like that, that, that that's just the way it is for them. There are other people who are who moved into our modulars, for example, where there are some rules. 
perhaps not as strict as some of the facilities operated by not-for-profits supported by the province, but nonetheless, there are rules there and, there, and you have to provide crisis housing support. Then you get into the whole social housing, the, the, you know, the low-income housing situation. In Nova Scotia, uh, you know, certain municipalities are not responsible for social housing. That's the province's role. There, I would I would submit that we're in a bit of a mess that we're in on the social housing side because the province has not built one stick of units uh, in the last 20 years, right? So housing Nova Scotia had not built anything. Uh, and in fact, I think last year it was reported by the government that there were 400 social housing units vacant because they were not inhabitable. They had not been kept up. So there's a problem there. And I think the, the government is looking at that and trying to fix that. But, the, you know, social housing or affordable housing uh, has to be subsidized in some fashion by government, right? Uh, the private sector can't build build uh, affordable housing. You know, the private sector is there. In a private sector role in Halifax, if you can build a house for, or, or say, a, a townhouse for 325 350 that's what's affordable. That's what's affordable in the private sector. And we can't expect to look at the private sector and say, you know, Build units and lose money. <laughs> Just that's, that's that's not the way it works, right? So, but I think governments can do is help. Municipality can do by waiving certain fees, of we, which we have done, and I think there's some legislation. You know, we're proposing some legislation where other fees, for example, the development charges at Halifax Water that are regulated by the the, the utilities board and the UARB. You know, those have to be looked at because they're a sizable chunk of of. Um, of the uh, of the cost uh, of of creating new units, the other thing is uh, you know CMHC uh, should be able to come up with better interest rates. You know, more if, if 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 the private sector will build affordable as long as they're given the incentive, and in this country the, it's the it's CMHC that has the has the big hammer right in terms of incenting. Uh, so if you come up with zero or one percent loans to to the private sector, where they would guarantee affordable units, based on the CMHC affordable unit metric uh, for twenty years, that would be a good thing. We've also been looking at things like uh, density density bonusing. We have a density bonusing program in Halifax, where you can get more density if you produce some affordable units based on a metric established by CMHC and based on a negotiation with the municipality and the developer. The other thing is inclusionary zoning. So uh, the government, current government uh, gave us the authority to adopt inclusionary zoning. And what inclusionary zoning means is that you have a mixed, you have mixed uh, rates on, on your rentals in that building, right? So, uh, and you're guaranteeing it for a certain period of time. So there's no there's a number of developers in Halifax that are very interested in that concept and are, are likely willing to play. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it has to be, again, the, the engagement has to be there. People have to agree on the model and agree on the solution. It can't just be, you know, somebody in my office coming up with a solution and say, this is it. And that's not the way it's going to work. So there's a whole lot of things that have to happen. The other part of it is, is what we've been doing with the rapid housing initiatives through CMHC. The rapid housing was, is all about creating affordable units through not-for-profit housing um, boards and, and, and entities. Uh, and we took on six projects, right? There are six projects currently, and there likely will be more as we go forward. Uh, but, you know, so HRM has had to take the financial risk and the construction risk against those projects, working with the private, with not-for-profit housing uh, organizations. They all do good work. The challenge is, of course, is volume. 
So not-for-profit housing organizations do not, do not have the capacity to build the number of units that are required. You have to have the private sector involved. Halifax is blessed, what I call in the, our indigenous development community, largely led by a, a number of Lebanese developers of Lebanese descent. And the, these folks are rock stars in the development world, I can tell you. Uh, you know, Danny Chedra, Jim Spatz, uh, you know, uh, there's... You know, you can, you, I can go on for a long time naming names on that, but I can tell you that uh, Louis Lowen, you know, another one, um, you know, Alex Haliff, there's a number of people who are doing development work in Halifax that are, are committed to the community and want to be able to produce some level of affordability, but they need some help. They can't do it alone because they have bankers and they have shareholders and they have to be able to show a margin as well, right? So there's a lot of things that are, that are going on, but there's a lot of things that could happen in the near future that could accelerate some of this work, but it has to be, a, has to be largely driven by the private sector. So uh, just to follow up on the housing uh, uh, question for a second, one of the things that uh, Halifax has is the, one of the fastest uh, uh, growths in downtowns in Canada. Uh, in, in fact, between 2016 and 2020, uh, I think uh, it increased by over 26%. Now, the only reason that that's working, of course, is that we're finally building high-rise buildings, which had been, you know, not very well supported in the past. And I think this is one of the challenges that the municipality faces, right? Like, you know, uh, that we need to have density, as you just referred to. We need to take advantage of the infrastructure that's in place. I mean, when, when the municipality was amalgamated, we had tremendous sprawl, which was very costly to the municipality. Um, and, 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 and finally, we're, we're developing the urban core. I just wanted you to comment on, you know, what kind of made the, the downtown uh, prosper so much in that five-year period? Well, I think you pretty, you pretty much nailed it. Number one is, uh, you know, in the public sector, there are two things that make things happen, political will and bureaucratic inertia. And those things actually happen in Halifax. And so the council, the mayor and council, uh, led by Mike Savage, basically decided that they wanted to focus more development in, in, the, in, the, in the core. So they, they said 40% of the development has to happen in the downtown core, right? And... Uh, so when you make that policy decision, then, you know, the bureaucrats will say, yes, sir, uh, stand to attention and, and, and make it, start making it happen. And we had some really good developers, right, really good developers in the downtown that uh, may, have made it happen. Though they've been building and, you know, the, uh, you know, Joe Ramia, for example, has invested the humongous dollars. You know, there's been a lot of investment in, in like the, the convention center making it making the downtown a place where people want to be you know the maple building i lived in the maple building which is one of jimmy's fastest building you know i would i would go to i would walk through the parking garage on occasion when i if i didn't walk to work and you know what was parked down there were a lot of high-end cars driven by international students right and uh, so a lot of students a lot of young people want to live in in the urban setting uh, and uh, so that's attractive because, as you point out, there was not the capacity, there was not the volume of, of residential offerings in the downtown core pr prior to that. Now there are, and people are flocking in droves. You know, you look at what uh, 
what others have done in terms of new condo developments and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. So it, there's been a, there's been a change in mindset at, at the mayor and council level. And, uh, you know, certainly the planning team, you know, that worked for me under Kelly Denty's leadership have, have done exceptional work in terms of trying to make sure that the development approvals get, 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 get done and uh, building permits get issued. Right now, uh, I'll tell you, in, in HRM, there are about 10,000 building, 10,000 units under permit right today. There are 100,000 units enabled by the center plan. So there's a lot of work going on, but it has it was down to, you know, strategy, policy by council and strategy to, to execute. Um. Halifax was one of the first cities in Canada to come up with a climate action plan. Can you tell us what, what is the purpose of a city having a plan like that? And uh, what are the elements of that plan? Yeah, well, that's look, we've had a, one of the reasons, uh, one of the things that attracted me to Halifax was the fact that they didn't have one <laughs> and uh, the opportunity to do one. I, we did one when I was in Moncton and uh, I thought it was a very, very important thing to get at. Because you know, climate, any climate deniers, uh, you know, I think it are becoming few and far between. So this is all about you know efficient buildings, renewable energy, decarbonizing transportation, you know, putting greening the transit fleet, for example, greening the government operations, uh, you know, making sure that there are critical, you know, we're taking care of critical infrastructure and services. You know, we're built on the ocean in Halifax on coastal preparedness. You know, making sure there are natural areas and green infrastructure assets like, you know, Blue Mountain Birch Cove or Shaw Wilderness Park. It's also about, you know, making sure that, you know, food security exists uh, and that there's community capacity. And, you know, we're also looking at how do, how do we deal with climate from an emergency management perspective? And what about the business economy? You know, can we can we profit from green the green economy? And I believe we can. You know, there's monitoring and reporting on all this. There's carbon accounting. Um, you know, we're mainstreaming climate into municipal operations, and there's you know governance for you know capacity for action, for example. So again, council decided, you know, you wanted a policy on this, and we come up with a strategy. And there's all kinds of actions in the in the climate action plan strategy. If you look it up, you'll see there's there's a ton of things, right? So we're, you know, for example, with the city, we're investing heavily in in up in uh, making our buildings resilient so you know all the new buildings are net zero we're creating we're, we're basically retrofitting all our buildings we're greening the fleet we have you know we're, we're we're working with the feds in the province on for example uh greening the transit fleet you know by 2030 the transit fleet should be fully off of diesel by that time it'll be on electric and likely hydrogen hydrogen is a big play uh, and it's going to get more important as we go forward. There may be other things that happen, but, you know, battery technology, Dalhousie University is, is a world leader in battery technology and have all kinds of partnerships. And we believe that we can do a lot of work with Dal and the private sector to create green jobs in, in HRM. The other thing we're doing is, you know, we're going to be putting ferry services in from Bedford using uh, green ferries, right? We want to convert our ferry. We have the oldest serving continuously serving running ferry service in the, in the, in the, in the country. And, uh, you know, we need to get off of fuel and the new, the new ferry services that will be going through the Bedford basin to, from Bedford to Halifax and from other parts along the Bedford basin into Dartmouth, et cetera, all, all will be based on uh, net zero applications. So, 
it's very critical that we play our part. And I know there are some people that say, well, look, you know, if, if, if Halifax is the only one or, you know, if China doesn't do this or China or the United States doesn't do that or whatever, um, I think we got to lead by example and we just have to get it done. We need to be net zero by 2030 and we have a plan to get there. And so that's what we're doing. And, and uh, I think it's high time that everybody gets on board. You know, so I have a, I have a question I've been aching to ask you for a long time. <laughs> and then, yeah, I never knew you to be shy, Don. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, when the uh, municipality was amalgamated, I was uh, I was actually uh, chairing the uh, Halifax, the newly amalgamated uh, Halifax Chamber of Commerce, and um, we supported the amalgamation, uh, thinking that the amalgamation was going to uh, include only the urban areas. And then the amalgamation came along, and they uh, threw in the county of Halifax, we never yes. understood that. We uh, Maybe you can tell us why they did that. I, I'd like to find out. <clears throat> but it seems to me that it really um, probably slowed the development of the urban core um, over that period of time. There is, uh, you know, what happens uh, when you add, you know, that kind of level of rural community, their expectations of services go up beyond what they could personally afford to pay for. And so the cost of... Any enhancement of service, as you know, gets spread out on the urban core. I know this is sensitive when you were in in your job, couldn't talk about it, but I'd like your opinion on whether or not you think, as I think, that the um, former county should be hived off the uh, municipality and that we truly become a city. That's a tough one, but I'm, I'm, I've wanted to ask you that question for a long time. Now you can, now, now you can answer it. Now I can answer it, yeah. Some people might get mad at me. But uh, look, at the end of the day, uh, they made the decision to incorporate the three, the four bodies that existed at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, town of Bedford, City of Dartmouth, City of Halifax, and the county. There's no question that the community of interest of the county of Halifax, all of it doesn't necessarily align itself with with H, with with the city or Dartmouth for that matter, right? So there were some that would argue that going all the way out to Ecomsecum on the eastern shore was probably a bit of a stretch, right? Sheet Harbor, um, you know, it's, it's it's a bit of a stretch. Now, though, most of the folks in Sheet Harbor relate back to the center, right? That's where their community of interest is. So many people work there. Going out as far as seek him, seek him. I thought. I think. I think if I would have, if I, if I had any say in it, and I didn't, I, I just inherited what I what I inherited. Um, I would probably would not have gone that out that far. I mean, it takes almost three hours to get from downtown Halifax to to seek him, seek him. And some of those folks are more uh, inclined to to their community of interest is is is, is anti Ganesh in that part of the world, right? Uh, so I think that's probably the, 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 the only one that I would say is questionable. Uh, there's, some in, there's some folks that would argue that Sheet Harbor might have been a little bit uh, a, a bridge too far as well. Uh, but, you know, again, I think when you talk to the folks there, uh, there's a lot of folks in, in Sheet Harbor that, that live in Sheet Harbor for lifestyle. Uh, as, as much as, you know, people live in Hubbard's for lifestyle on the other, on the South shore, um, but commute to Halifax and work, have, have, their, have their economic center is in fact Halifax, right? So I don't think I would have gone as far as you can see to answer your question directly. 
Yeah, just to be clear, if you're in Econsecum, you cannot receive the radio stational signals from Halifax. That's how far out it is. Exactly. But, you know, but, but you know, again, just to, to get on my hobby horse. I mean, you know, <clears throat> the, uh, the the problem of satisfying a very large rural community is tough, right? It really, it really, it, it makes it hard to manage. It's got to be hard to manage because I, I, I have friends living in, in the rural parts of the community and they're always saying, oh, we're taxed so high. You know, it was always better under the county of Halifax. And, you know, I keep saying, well, you're still not paying for what you're getting. <laughs> Don't complain. Well, you're, ab- you're absolutely right on that front. Now, there is a study that was done a few years ago before my time and, and council had asked me to renew the study. Uh, and, um, you know, it wasn't done before I left, but it will be done. It'll, it'll, it'll show uh, what the tax burden is and what, and what they're paying uh, in rural versus suburban versus the core. There's no doubt that the urban center, the true urban center, the true city of Halifax, the old city, and Dartmouth, for example, and Bedford uh, uh, subsidize effectively some of these rural areas, right? Uh, because you look at look at Dartmouth, just the Burnside Industrial Park alone uh, creates a tremendous amount of income, uh, revenue, commercial tax for the city, and that's spread out around. Now, in fairness, there are differential tax rates in in HRM. People, we, there was a structure put in place. Is it perfect? There's no perfect fiscal policy that I've ever found. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, there is some remedy there. But I think. When this new, with the new figures come out based on the on the current costs and the current assessments, people are going to be a bit surprised that they're actually not paying their fair share in rural and suburbia. I would argue too. Thank you for saying that. that I knew that for a long time, and now a lot yeah. of other people yeah. know that too. Yeah, the math is pretty clear. <laughs> Since nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> So, Jacques, I think we want to end our conversation today by asking you about the future. Of course, in your role as CAO, you have to plan for the longer term. You have already talked about the potential infrastructure investments and public transportation and so on. But, I mean, I'm looking at the numbers here and I'm, you know, there's a lot of growth on the table. I mean, your own Halifax partnership is talking about 650,000 by 2037. Yeah. Premier Houston is suggesting now there'll be 2 million people living in Nova Scotia by 2060. He actually had it in the mandate letter to the minister. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I mean, just if you attracted your share of that in Halifax, that would be another 500,000. So you've got, you'll, you'd have over a million people living in HRM. So I guess the question for you is, is the city or the municipality built in such a way that it could support that level of growth? And uh, and what do you think of that idea of of, of Halifax be- becoming such yeah. a major a million person city within, uh, well, probably not within any of our lifetimes, but uh, by twenty sixty. Well, it's an interesting question. It's something we've done a lot of thinking about and analysis on. So, you know, our current strategy basically says that by twenty thirty will be. Uh, Five hundred fifty thousand people by twenty thirty seven will be six fifty. Those are those are actually conservative numbers. To be honest with you, last year we grew by twenty one thousand. So you know when you look at when you look at Halifax becoming a million people by twenty sixty, very much in, in in sight. That's that's actually reasonable to expect that if you're if you're six hundred and fifty thousand people by twenty thirty seven, which is 
pretty much a, a slam dunk in my opinion. Um, that means that by 2060, 23 years later, you've grown by another 350,000 people. So you just do the math, 37, 37 years times, uh, you know, say, say a low number, uh, say 10,000 people a year. You know, that's, that's a fair amount of people, right? And so you're, if you add those numbers up, you're a little over 900,000. So I, you know, and that's a conservative number. So I think the million people in Halifax by 2060 is actually realistic. And is, is there a capacity to do that? Yeah, there is. Um, because, you know, you're going to see, like many other cities, suburbia growing up more uh, and densifying more. The downtown core will continue to densify significantly, I would, I would suggest. Uh, all kinds of potential in the Dartmouth for, for densification in the core that has not been tapped into. Same as in, same as in parts of Bedford. There's lots of room for densification in suburbia, lower Sackville, et cetera, uh, and going out. Further, you know, you get into places like Tantalon and other places, uh, you're going to see a lot more people uh, living there. And that'll all have to be supported by transit systems, right? And uh, adequate transit systems and, and services and recreation and leisure, whatever else. So that's all actually very much in reach. Where I would question uh, is, is there going to be another, is that number uh, in the rest of Nova Scotia going to reach that make it up to a million people in the rest of Nova Scotia. I've always been a firm, and reason I came, one of the reasons I came to Halifax, and one of the reasons I spent a lot of my time in my public sector career in municipalities is that I liked it. <laughs> you know, city-states are a thing. You know, the economy doesn't work on state boundaries or provincial boundaries. It's, the economy actually works on regional and sub-regional economies. So in Atlantic Canada, what you have is the maritime region, and then you have the Atlantic region, which includes Newfoundland. That's those are economic regions. The sub-economic regions are like places like Halifax. Now, you know, can can the other, arguably eleven centers in in Nova Scotia, generate enough economic and social growth and population growth to to bring that number to another million people? I'm not sure. I'm somewhat skeptical on that because people will generally gravitate to where services are, where there's healthcare, there's education, there's services, there's, you know, all kinds of job opportunities. So, you know, is it possible? Yeah, I think it's possible for the rest of Nova Scotia to, to experience that growth. But if Halifax uh, grows from the number it is now to a million in that time frame, I am highly skeptical that the remaining amount of people Raining population will actually double up because most of the growth will be in Halifax. It has been, and it will continue to be that way. So the kind of the math is kind of clear in my mind, but look, I think it's good to have a stretch goal. I think Premier Houston set up, set a stretch goal to make people focus on it and his ministers focus on it. Good thing. Can he achieve it in the rest of Nova Scotia? I'm somewhat skeptical, to be honest with you. So you think that Halifax will have to, if we're going to get to two million, that Halifax will have to bear even a, a larger share of that uh, that additional million people? Correct, and I think the million people, the million people in Halifax, which is basically, if you look at it right now, uh, means about another five hundred twenty-five thousand people by that time. Uh, yeah, that can happen. So the rest of Nova Scotia, can you actually make? Can Halifax grow faster than that? I would say possibly, maybe up, maybe ten percent more, uh, you know, realistically. Uh, but you know, it's kind of crystal ball gazing, right? Who knows what's going to happen in the economy in ten years from now, twenty years from now, thirty years from now? Like I said, I think it's good to have a stretch goal, but 
I'm skeptical that the rest of Nova Scotia will grow at the same pace as as, as HRM. Not likely. Not right. likely. Jacques, now that you've stepped away from your role at HRM, what are your plans now? Well, right now, I'm uh, my, my immediate plan is to enjoy the sunshine here in the Carolinas, and then I'm going to uh, head back to Bathurst in the early April. I moved to Bathurst uh, from my hometown, and my wife's from there as well, and I bought a boat. And uh, and uh, we're going to do some. I'm going to do some boating, some fishing, and enjoy the rivers and whatever else. And I'll likely take on some some assignments, like consulting assignments, retainer, uh, board work, volunteer work, that kind of thing. Um, my current intention is not to work full time anymore, but uh, you never know. Who knows? Maybe maybe something will pop up that makes it so, like Halifax pops up that makes it so compelling that I want to keep going. But right now, my plan is to. Try to work as, as 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 little as possible for the maximum amount of money I can possibly earn. <laughs> well, sounds, we, sounds like yeah. a dream. <laughs> well, we wish you well. Thanks, thanks for so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Thanks you very much. Appreciate it. Great, great chatting as usual. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.